Any any prayer requests this morning? We'll, we'll pull out, can you pull out the Shakespeare sonnets because the poems we'll start with this morning are Shakespeare. I want to take a second to um, just be clear about what we'll do for the next few weeks in a second. But Bev, you've got something? Yes. Uh, last year we prayed for Sherry who had like throat cancer. She's survived that during fine, but last CAT scan they found something else in a different spot. So I'm going with her this afternoon because her sister's out of town to see the ENT guy and hopefully he will, she does she's not looking forward to another biopsy. Yeah. So just keep her <coughs> in your prayers. Sherry? Sherry. Sherry. Yeah, the prayers worked last year, they you really can't take them for granted. I mean, sometimes <laughs> what we pray for happens, and sometimes it doesn't. It just <coughs> we can't see what always understand what God's doing. Is that it? Anybody else? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you and the gift of yourself this morning. Um, the gospel this morning was on the count because I wanted to make a point of sorry um, I'd like to ask um, um, for a blessing for all of us Lord that we all keep each other in our prayers one of the images I have of our work together as a group is, <laughs> I hope you'll pardon my making this personal, of our all climbing purgatory together. You know that my belief is that we're, this life is a purgatory, that we're meant to lift that mountain now, um, to take on our sins and with the help of the church approach God. So one of my images is that we're climbing together. It's a dear image for me strengthen us in our efforts to make this climb, to take a joy in what we're doing together, um, to suffer our labors and be glad, um, sharing them with each other and not being embarrassed by our sins, knowing we all have them, um, but grateful that we could do this together, not alone. So let a blessing be on our common work. Um, ask a blessing on Sherry um, and for the blessing that she has in Bev, um, um, to have a friend who would look out for her. Watch over her, um, um, let her find in this trial again um, a strength to draw closer to you and um, let Bev help with that from the strength that she's gained from her own trials. So is this the last time we'll see you for a while? Oh, no, no. I'll be here. I'll be your nemesis through December. You won't be a nemesis. <laughs> okay, hold off and, well, watch out for Sue while she's here. <laughs> Thank you. And me, and more importantly, me if I'm her nemesis or if she's my nemesis. Um, wait on the <coughs> vacation prayers, but um, watch over all of us. Um, you know, all that we're doing, help us to grow in humility and in a spirit of boldness 
in taking you to the world. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Oh God! It, it's. I put it. It may be on the table, Doc, in the hallway to the to the opening of the church because I put my book down. I'm not sure. What I do. Um. I'm gonna. Where's? I'm gonna give Suzanne and Fred a minute. Are they coming right back? Just a, a, a brief note about what we're going to do. Um, my eyes are going, my body's going, so I'm having back troubles and having to sit in. Oh, there it is. How'd you know, Fred? He heard you. You're not my first absent minded professor. <laughs> <laughs> two weeks, um, I'm going to go back to uh, Merchant of Venice and Othello. Okay? Just, I'm going to spend one day on Merchant and one day on Othello. Just, and my reason for doing that is this. We just left, uh, I mean we took a break to do the Protestant Catholic thing and it took us back to Dante and Milton. Milton, you know, is on the verge of modernity, and some people look at him as the first modern. I do and I don't. Um, he's, he's the first modern in the sense that he, he's um, the great epic poet of the Protestant mind. He, he, he's given us what is so clearly a Protestant epic. It's a great epic, continues the epic tradition. You all know it now, you've done it. But in some ways, it's... Uh, it's a Protestant rereading of history, and it darkens the epic tremendously. You know that. It makes Satan a seemingly hero. He's not. Um, but it casts a dark light back on the whole epic tradition. It makes all the epic heroes um, bad you know, because of his belief in depravity. It makes all the ancient gods bad. They're all derived from the fallen angels. So it's an it's a epic about the fall. The part of the greatness of that epic rests in the fact that he's making clear um, what's behind all the other epics. He let the cat out of the bag. The fall's behind them all. So even in his mind, even if the Greeks or Romans, Homer or Virgil, didn't see it, what was behind the conflicts in those epics was man's fall, his disobedience of God, and all that that set in motion. So it's a major, major work. It's on the threshold of modernity. When we finished with that, we went back and did Chaucer and picked up again where we were. Read Chaucer and then um, I ended Chaucer with the uh, Clerk's Tale, Griselda, to set up Shakespeare with this play with Helena because I wanted to, to give you these two radically different images of a really of virtuous women. So that's where we are. We're going to finish Shakespeare here. What I'd like to do is go back and just briefly put together 
um, Merchant and Othello with Oswell because the, the three of them together deal more directly with the beginnings of the modern world than any of his other plays. <coughs> they all Othello and Merchant, as you know, deal with Venice, the modern commercial regime. Um, Oswell doesn't. Oswell has got a court life. But in one sense, what he's doing with Oswell is consonant with what he's doing with <coughs> Merchant and Othello because we're watching Shakespeare um, offer a critique of the aristocratic world and something changing it that prepares for the modern world. I, I suggest it sort of flippantly, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. That we can look at Helena as the as the prototype of the um, of those who brought about the French Revolution. She interjects into that French world um, an element that softens its stratifications. I mean, radically challenges it, changes it. She's bringing a, a more Catholic, a more democratic spirit back into that aristocratic world. So Shakespeare's showing the, the harmful effects of privilege, of class privilege, and um, its harmful effects. You know, when you pick up this play, you can't read it without seeing pretty quickly. quickly. We're in a world of decay. That French aristocracy's um, disintegrating. It's dying she brings into a new life. So all three of those plays, Merchant, Othello, Much Ado, no, or All's Well, Much Ado should be in there, but um, All's Well, really give us um, Shakespeare's view of where we are in the modern world. He'll go into the tragedies from this, and then the, rom the great romances, um, Twelfth Night, and we've done Winter's Tale, which I think is the most extraordinary thing he ever did. But all the dark tragedies and the romances. So he goes into a very dark period. And I, I'll just make this very, probably overly simplistic generalization. But <coughs> when you put these three plays together, that he writes just as he enters his dark period, with the tragedies and then the romances, you see <coughs> Shakespeare giving a very, very dark view of the modern world. He's got a very dark view of man. If you carry this, this the, the, the work through to its end from this point in the middle, after, after the light comedies, gets these, what's called these problem comedies that we've been looking at and then into the tragedy. Shakespeare's got a very, very dark view of the modern world and man. And it's interesting that very few men come off looking well. Men, men seem to be... Sorry. Morning. Sorry. No, no, that's okay. Um, men seem to be um, not very trustworthy. Women um, are, are the ones who seem, generally speaking, more virtuous. It isn't to say that there aren't mean women in Shakespeare, because there are. And in some ways, when the women go bad, they go worse than the men. Um, Lady Macbeth is, a, is a, in some ways a fowler. There's something noble about tragic heroes, the men, like all tragic heroes. But um, Shakespeare's very clear, as people grow in power, they tend to be less trustworthy, more given to sins. And women who stand outside of that power structure um, are, are safer and maintain their virtue and can bring something to that male order that the men can't. 
That's just a generalization, but it's true. And I, and I thought a lot about that after watching Game of Thrones. Suzanne and I watched that through. It's hard to watch that without watching leaders. I mean, I, I can't think of a leader in that except John Boy or whatever his name was. The jo Not John Boy. John something, whatever. Um, <laughs> who was, I think, probably one of the most qualified, who didn't want to be a leader. It was like Moses. Um, the Shakespeare's principle is that the, the, the greater a power a man takes on, the more likely he is to be corrupted. The freer people stay from power, the more they can practice a virtue, the less they stay outside of that power dynamic realm, the more good they can do. And we've been just seeing that generally here. Um, Helena, you know, those of you who've done Winter's Tale know that how remarkable the women the women are. Hermione, to, to me, is one of the most stunning women. She suffers greatly. Remember, Leonte puts her in the tower, and she's, <coughs> she's reported to be dead when he learns about the death of his son. And she and Paulina work out this plot. Um, Hermione's kept closeted on the hope that what, what Leontes lost will be found. That's Perdita. What's lost will be found when the daughter returns. So the great hope for Shakespeare lies in women very often. So I'm glad to finish the <coughs> sequence because you remember when, it's really interesting. When we did Chaucer, when you looked at it, um, the, the women were far more virtuous because they were outside that political realm. Because when people enter that political realm, the, the likelihood of being corrupted increases. The, and I'm saying this with a sense of irony because I think traditionally we think of men as being the rescuers of women. They're the providers. They take care of them. What we're seeing in Shakespeare is very often the women <coughs> offer something to the men that helps the men become better. The, the men come to something that they wouldn't have without the women. It's a remarkable thing. And I, I happen to believe that in... Um, um, all's well that he put his finger right exactly on what that is in a woman. And I think it's something lost to the modern mind, absolutely lost to modern woman. So um, anyway, we will finish up all's well today. I'm going to take a day next week on Merchant, just a day, and we're not going to go, you've already read it. I'm going to highlight some things to reinforce the point that I'm making here, to, to to make more sense of it because you'll see it more easily when we put it together. And then I'm going to spend a day on Othello with the same purpose in mind. Because of Othello's the tragic side of Venice, you remember. And I want to focus on some things that, that um, are seminal to Othello. So when we finish these three plays, Oswell, Merchant, Othello, we'll have a better sense of, of Shakespeare's <coughs> treatment of the modern world where we are today okay we're not gonna we're, we're not gonna go on we've already done Hamlet a long time ago we're not gonna go on and do any of the romances we've done Winter's Tale I'm a little bit sorry for the sequence in which we've done them because it would right now it would make sense to do Twelfth Night and Pericles which is a story we've not done which I think it belongs in that uh, group of romances it's mystical it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful play. And Winter's Tale, because you could see how he comes out of this period where he's dealing with the threshold of modernity and then going on to the romances, which are sacramental. I mean, the, the vision that he gives us at the end, that there are these patterns of redemption 
in, in the human psyche that are extraordinary. He, he goes through the dark period and then ends up writing these, what, what literary people call romances. I call them sacramental plays. They're, they're just full of wonder and mystical things. Um, maybe if we have time at the end of the year, we'll come back and do Pericles or something. But anyway, so the next two weeks, Merchant, Othello, and then we'll do Antony and Cleopatra. We're going back. And my reason for including Antony and Cleopatra, it's going to seem odd because we've been focusing so much on modernity, but in Antony and Cleopatra, I'm, I'm going to suggest, try to sh make clear what I think Shakespeare's doing there. He's going back to Antony and Cleopatra who live just at the time, just before Christ came into the world. And what Shakespeare does with that play is what we've been calling in this group apophatic knowledge. It's knowledge by negation, what we don't see. Um, we talked about it a good bit when we were doing Eliot, this presenting a reality that makes us aware of things we can't name, but that are there, they're real. When we do Anthony and Cleopatra, I hope to be able to show you that he's aware that this is the end of the Roman Empire, it's collapsing, but um, there are indications of a God entering the world. Now think about the importance of that. He's not there yet, but the way that Shakespeare manages this shows he's aware. Even if the Romans were not, the Roman gods are dying, they're withdrawing, it's as if something else is coming. So it's by negation that he's suggesting this is the time. So it's once again my attempt to, to try to help clear that Christ is there always even if we don't see him. Is that clear? So we'll go back to Anthony and Cleopatra. That'll finish up our work in Shakespeare. I've thought about doing <laughs> Scarlet Letter, but I think, I think I'm think i not going to. We'll see how you guys do. What I, what I, what I think I'm going to do then is go on to Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. It'll pick up Chaucer and St. Thomas, or I mean, uh, um, um, Thomas. Um, with Chaucer, and then we'll do Dostoevsky. We've got to clear the shelves here. Dostoevsky's been in the office now, I think, yeah. for a year and a half. Um, and and that'll be it. We'll see what happens. I'm going to check with you guys to see if it's time to stop or go ahead or do whatever we're going to do. But, but that's what we're going to do, okay? So, Merchant Othello, Murder in the Cathedral. Do we have that one, Bob? Mm-mm. We've got to order it. Um, Murder in the Cathedral and uh, Brothers Karamazov, the great Russian novel. That okay, is that all clear? So I think we ought to be able to do that um, in spring. I mean, but before spring is over, so we're through for the year. And I'm looking forward to doing Dostoevsky. It's a, it takes us into another culture, you know. And, and Dostoevsky to me was far, far superior to Tolstoy. And I mean, as, as much as people think of Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky really captured the soul of the Russian people. The people looked at him that way too. Um, so that's that's our work. Okay. Any any questions about what we're? That should be manageable. Can you pull out Shakespeare? Let's.
I want to do Sonnet 73 and 146. <coughs> Both of these I thought were appropriate because the first one speaks to a very great love and the second one speaks to our sense of corruption, the, our struggles with sin. Remember that the Shakespearean sonnet consists of three quatrains, three groups of four lines, A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E, F, E, F, G, G. Um, it's three exempla, three examples of a common theme. People, teachers often talk about that technically. Three quatrains and a couplet. That's it. <laughs> That's a little bit foolish. Um, what's amazing about the structure of that couplet, or I mean the Shakespeare sonnet form, is this. It shows how steeped Shakespeare was in medieval philosophy, how well he knew it. Because if you know anything about medieval philosophy, you know that at the center of it was this concern for being. Being. You know that God identified himself in the Old Testament as, I am that am. He is being itself. He is. He's uncreated. There was nothing before him, nothing after. He, he wasn't created. He is. He's being itself. Um, the great focus of the Middle Ages was on the philosophy of being. St. Thomas was the master of it. Um, and we've lost a sense of it. One of, the, one of the signs of the collapse of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modernity is the loss of a sense of being. The empirical sciences, the, what we can know through our senses and that can be repeatable, have replaced the notion of being. So in that sense, we live in a spiritually impoverished world. We've lost a sense of being and the miraculous, and that's where we are in this way. Can somebody? <coughs> is that all clear? So for him to give three exempla followed by a conclusion shows that, hi Tom, um, that he's aware of being. Because how else could you get three very different things revealing the same thing unless they have something in common? They all share in being. They all exist. They participate in being or they couldn't be different and still share a nature. And it's that fact that allows him to make a conclusion at the end. The conclusion is always a generalization. It gives a universal truth. Is that clear? That's so important. I mean, it's so simple and most teachers look past it, but it's profound. Every sonnet using that form implies it. The being of things connects them, even though they're different. Or they couldn't be connected. We wouldn't see what they have in common. So each one of them exemplifies that form. In the first one, he's talking about love and the importance of loving well, because since we're mortal, we're all going to lose that love shortly. So we should never take it for granted. None of us knows if we're going to be here the next day. Unless you happen to be going on a six-month trip. <laughs> I was going to, so by being, you mean like there's... Um, a feeling of spirituality in all things? No. Is that what you mean no. by being? Or being, is just, being is just that. It's being. God is. Nothing was before him, nothing after. He created us, and we share in his being. We are. We exist. But he is being. So, so we're contingent. We didn't create ourselves. We're created. He's not. He's uncreated. He's unbegotten. So God is. He simply is. 
He's perfect. He's not contingent. He doesn't depend on anything. He is. Nothing can destroy him. He won't ever die. He's eternal. He is, is forever. Okay, we, and, that's, and that was, and you're saying like because of uh, the science and reason that that's been diminished. Except, I mean that awareness right, has been diminished. Right. I don't want to put reason in that category because the great scholastic philosophers could have never done what they did without reason. Mm -hmm. We tend to we tend to think of reason in a in a um, a more reductive way in our world. But reason, here, let me put it this well, way. Well, I say the scientific method of proof. And, and, it, and, it, and it looks at reason in a, in a way that diminishes its real power. Um, St. Thomas could never have made his arguments, or St. Augustine, Boethius, but I'm thinking particularly of Thomas because <laughs> Thomas took reason farther than anybody else. Let me put it this way. Um, how does it put it? There's, this is Maritain, there's no mystery. There's no mystery where there's not more to be known. There's no mystery where there's not more to be known. Mm -hmm. The question is, how, how healthy is our reason? Can we begin to penetrate that mystery? If that isn't clear, let me put it differently. God is light himself. He's pure intelligibility. Aristotle, who didn't know God the way we know him, said, that the source of all things is this unmoved God. It's like light itself. But um, that light is like the sun to a bat. A bat can't look at that. We can't look directly at the sun. So in the ancient world, the sun was an analogy of being, of the ultimate source of all things, pure light. For us, that light exists in darkness. We can't see it because we're cut off from it. But our reason, which is a power of light, can penetrate it. So no mystery exists where there's not more to be known. All mystery points to him. We, we struggle to penetrate that mystery, to open it up. And God is that. He's all light. He's all being, like the sun. It's, it's an eternal effulgent light. It just When we leave this world, we will be leaving a world shrouded in darkness and enter that light. That's our belief. But here, we know we live partly blind. We're dependent. Our mortality covers us, shades us, shadows us. Um, but God is being. He is. There's nothing before, nothing after. He was uncreated. We're created. We're contingent. Um, so, wait, where am I going? So, so is that clear? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, Shakespeare couldn't have written the, the sonnets in this form if he, if he wasn't aware of that fact. Otherwise, how do you get three very different things? Because usually the sonnets take three different examples of a truth and conclude on them. There has to be something connecting those three different things or you could make a generalization about all of them. So the sonnet implies being, that all, a tree exists, a pear exists, a cow exists. Humans exist. We all participate in being. The difference between us and God is that we're mortal. A cow will die. A tree will. That is, we're in a fall. Before the fall, things. I mean, our assumption was that in the prelapsarian garden, things would have gone forever. But after the fall, death entered our world. So things will die. Things come into being. They die. Um, our belief is 
if our faith holds that one day we will enjoy that being. We will be one with God forever. There will be no more mortality, no more death. We will be and sharing, in the, sharing in the indwelling of the Trinity, sharing in that oneness with each other. That's what we got from Dante. <coughs> we, we okay here? Okay? No? Yeah. Is the word nemesis appropriate right at the no. second? No? Okay. <laughs> no. I, I mean, there's a word that comes to my mind, and maybe I'm off base with it, but, but the being, I understood all the parts of what you said, but that didn't explain to me those three things have together what I would call an essence. But that's kind of like being. But, but I, I, so I'm not sure of that type. All the, everything you've said, I guess. See, I let, me, let me just pick that up. I want to go on because this is not a class in philosophy, but just yeah. that's a good word. Each one of those things has a distinct essence. The essence of a tree is different from the essence okay. of a fire. Hold on. Oh, no, but I want to, I'm glad you used it. The essence of man is different from the essence of a, a, a vegetable. But what is it that makes it possible for things having different essences to be united? There's some analogical tie. They're related to each other. They all share in being. Otherwise, otherwise things of different essences couldn't be related to each other. There's affinities between them. Let me leave it there because this is, um, this is not a course on being, it's a, I mean, UD requires, I think, it's philosophy students want a class on being because it's essential to, but you can go online or go into Thomas and Google St. Thomas on being and, you know, and probably get some good explanations of it. I just wanted to once again remind everybody that, that this, this isn't just something technical. It's not just three examples with a conclusion, which is what teachers today say. He couldn't do this if he didn't have this intuition of being. And we know that from his plays because miracles are constantly coming into the plays. If you read enough of them. Okay. There's going to be one here, a couple in as well. Sonnet 73. He's going to look at three different examples of death. One connected with a winter, one connected with a day when the sun goes down, and one connected with a fire going out. Now, how can such three, such distinct things be related? Because by analogy, they share. They share something. They're all in being, and they're all giving a sense of our mortality. Okay? Sonnet 73. <clears throat> A time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves, or none, or few, do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare rune choirs where late the sweet birds sing. Sang, sorry. Notice that winter's here. The birds, the song is passing. It's past. Things are dying. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fadeth in the west, which by and by black night doth take away death's second self that seals up all in rest. So sleep is an analogy. The day passes, we go to sleep. It's like an image of dying. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire consumed with that which it was nourished by. Each one of us is an image. The very things that 
burn. We'll call it the fire we bring to what we do. A passion is the very thing that consumes us, will wear us out, take away our life. Because our mortality hangs on us. In Shakespeare, one of the truths we learn, if you're reading it, is we're dying from the day we're born. <coughs> Truly, even while we're moving forward, death is in us. We carry it every day. The church, memento mori, memento mori, remember death. <coughs> in me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth does lie, all that he expended. Isn't that true of all of us? I mean, we reach a certain age and we think, our youth is with us, but we've spent it. It's brought us to where we are. It's still present in us, but it's dying. So it's, it's like we're an image of a fire. We share that with a, our being. Our human being is shared with the being of a fire. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie as the deathbed whereon it must expire, consumed with that which it was nourished by. The very life that nourished us consumes us, <coughs> burns us out. We're all heading, we're all heading towards ashes. Ash Wednesday, from dust to dust, from ashes you came, from ashes you shall return. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well, which thou must leave ere long. It's imperative that we all love as well as we can, because we don't know tomorrow if we're here. We're not, we're not supposed to be taking our life for granted. We should be loving while we have a chance. Sonnet 146. <coughs> Sinful earth here, in the first line, means the body. But it, I think it, it has an enlarged meaning too. It also means what Paul usually describes as the flesh. You know, too great a preoccupation with worldly things that we give too much of our attention to the... By, the, by flesh, Paul didn't mean the body because he's not Manichaean, even though... He, I think he gets that, mis, that misreading sometimes. He means giving too, an, an inordinate importance to the things of the flesh, the body. And when we do that at the expense of our souls, it hurts us. Okay, So it means the body, but I think it has an enlarged meaning too, of, of being too preoccupied with material things. Sonnet 146. Poor soul, <clears throat> poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, my sinful earth, these rebel powers array. Why dost thou pine within and suffer dearth, panting, painting thy outward walls so costly gay? We take all this time and give our attention to the outward things at the cost of this poverty, this inner poverty. Why so large a cost, having so short a lease? We have the short lease on life. And, and notice the word lease, it's like it's lent. We're borrowing, you know, we're here on borrowed time. Why so large cost having so short a lease? Dost thou upon thy fading mansions spend? Our bodies are fading, these mansions we live in. Shall worms, inheritance of this excess, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store, to increase it. By terms divine, in shelling, selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich, no more. So shall thou feed on death that feeds on men, 
and death once dead, there's no more dying then. Now somebody paraphrased the last couple of lines because he's playing on what looks to be a paradox. By terms divine and selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shall thou feed on death, that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. What's he saying? <laughs> Could he hold? <laughs> you wouldn't know. <laughs> Linda okay? Yeah. Nobody can help me out here. Folly, what what's he saying? <laughs> the end. Hmm? The end. <laughs> That's or at the beginning. So shall thou feed on death. If we keep giving too much oh, importance okay. to external things and for our bodies. We're creating a condition of dearth, of poverty in our souls, you know. If we start making renunciations, putting those things away, we're defeating death and standing with Christ and living with him. So instead of giving into the body and death, um, we're actually defeating it. I mean, we're gonna die but we're living our life more fully in Christ. <laughs> Let me read it once more and, and leave it with, without a comment beyond that. But that's basically what's going on here, okay? Um, he, it's a poem about the, the um, state of struggle that the soul exists in. Um, this poor soul at the center of our being um, struggling against the, um, the dangers that the body or the world present us with. It's only when we start making renunciations, when we turn away from that and take better care of our souls to make those renunciations, Christ asks to renounce the world, to, that we more and more live with him and defeat death. Okay? Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, my sinful earth, these rebel powers array. Um, our, our sinful soul <coughs> arrays us with these like like uh, Paroli's with all of his scars, scars and you know you can watch people in the world dress themselves up so they look very beautiful and it, but at the expense of their souls I mean we have to ask so my sinful earth these rebel powers array why dost thou pine within and suffer dirt painting thy outward walls so costly gay what a cost to give that kind of attention to our outward appearances why so large cost, having so short a lease, dost thou upon thy fading mansion spend? Shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let the loss of the body, the renunciations. Let that pine to aggravate, increase thy store. By terms divine, in selling hours of dross, get rid of them. Within be fed, without be rich no more. So shall thou feed on death that feeds on men, and dead, death once dead, there's no more dying then. It, it reminds me of that poem of Herbert's that we read before, where he says, why so, why so costly? Remember he said, we're supposed to take a joy in death. Really? 
in that Herbert poem, because um, b before Christ, death was the most feared thing, because it was the end of life. After Christ, we know that the greatest thing is still ahead. So we're supposed to look forward to death joyfully. Hard as that is sometimes. Okay. Um, I want to put this together. See if we can finish this off. I want to focus on two things today in All's Well. One of them is what I'm calling <coughs> doubling here, and we'll, we'll get to it. Um, and I'll make it a little bit clearer when we get to it. And the other, this, this extraordinary place that women have, um, that, that Shakespeare has made clear in this, in this work, in a way that I don't think he's made clear in any other work, and, and I'm not aware of another author who's done what he's doing in this play. That's why it's so remarkable. And let me just say this to get it out of the way here at the beginning. I think the ending of All's Well, that ends well, is not a good ending. In some ways, I think it's a failure. Um, it, it, what the problems that Shakespeare is raising here to me are profound, but the treatment that he gives them at the end to me just doesn't justify. It, it, the ending's too abrupt. He doesn't develop the, all the problems that bring us to that ending, um, and, and it's not because I don't think Bertram and Helen are not going to be happy together, because um, I think they are the way Shakespeare has presented them, but he just. The, what he, there's so many things he's bringing together in that ending that he, and he doesn't give the characters the time that I think they need. He does that in, in uh, Winter's Tale, you know, and where he's dealing with profoundly, profound intimacies between a man and a woman. Um, so I, I don't think the ending's successful, but I think what he's doing in the play is extraordinary, and that's why I want to do it with you guys. So quickly, just a, um, a quick review. In All's Well, we're on the verge of modernity. We're in a French aristocracy, um, and we're made away aware right from the beginning that there's something wrong with this aristocracy. He's critiquing. It's in decay. It's dying. Proles, or Bertram's father has died. Helena's um, father has died. Fathers have died or dying out. The king is diseased. He's dying. And the physician, modern science, can't heal him. These are modern physicians who are up, up, who have the very latest knowledge in science. The person who helps them is not a doctor who's the product of modern sciences, it's Helena. This woman who received this special knowledge from her father. So it's a court in decay. We're watching as it plays out the corruptions of privilege that these people who are born into a class think they're better than others by virtue of their class birth. So, and that problem was focused on Bertram because he's the one who wants nothing to do with Helena, even though she's a better person than anybody else in the play, because she's low-born. Um, so we're at the verge of modernity in um, a decaying aristocratic regime. And we're made aware of the influence of it Italy because Helena goes to Italy to follow Bertram and comes back, and when she comes back, she brings something into this court that is the beginning of a radical transformation. So he's showing us um, the changes. I'm going to broaden this if I can. 
He's showing us the changes that the Italian Renaissance are introducing to Europe, France and in his own mind England. And we talked about some of the influences. Um, Shakespeare knows Copernicus. The Copernican Revolution has already taken place. He knows Machiavelli. He's read him. It's so all's well that end well applies it. The ends justify the means. And he knows the Reformation. And I want to take a minute with that this morning. And I hope I'm not going beyond the bounds of this play, but check me if I check me if I do. Um, remember, I read that line. Um, it, after Helena performs the miracle, remember, and nobody thinks it can happen. Um, this is, you don't have to go there, Act 2, Scene 3. Lefeu says, after the king has been cured, they say miracles are past and we have our philosophical, philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. That's a pretty um, pity statement of the modern world. We want to make everything easy. By the way, Aristotle was aware of this choice when he talked about being, that being is like the sun to a bat, we can't see it. That, that we have two choices. We can either choose to know far away things, metaphysics, or close up things, empirical realities, through our senses. The modern world has chosen the latter. We want what's more familiar and easier. We have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. The ultimate cause of things are God. He's the cause of all things. We've turned away from ultimate causes, being, to contingent things that the sciences can cover. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors, ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. Two things have contributed to this apparent disappearance of miracles. One of them is the sciences. Sciences can account for miracles. The sciences are based, this is so important, Sciences are based on what can't be other than it is in the material world. What can't be other than that's necessary. We call them laws, constancies, right? We want, to, we want to discover the laws with the belief that if we do, we get some control over our lives. Right? So the sciences rest on laws, what can be repeatable, so we can predict them. We have some measure of control over our lives. We think. Okay, that's the modern presumption. But we know the ultimate causes of things. We did this in Boethius. It's gone. If we really wanted to understand, we'd go to our beginnings there. But the sciences have preempted that. And so, for example, Freud in the sciences puts forth the argument that the human soul... Wait, let me go back. So what's behind all the sciences are what the sciences would call determinism, things that are determined, that can't be other than they are. Right? We discover them, we know them, we can depend on them, they're repeatable, we can work with them. Okay? Freud said that of the human soul that there are these determinations, determinisms. These are fixed things, determined things. Otherwise he couldn't know them. This is, he claims to be a scientist. Most of what he said, I believe, has been discredited. Um, Jung broke from him from, because he had real differences with Freud's theories. But for example, Freud said that the ultimate causes of the human soul are what he called polymorphous perverse instincts or the Oedipus instinct. 
and all the mechanisms that they develop, repression, transference, compensation, you know, things like that. So he articulated these um, psychic structures that to his mind gave us some sense of what the soul was doing so we could explain it. Um, so um, we, we are aware that we live in a world in which, for the most part, we believe miracles have disappeared, they don't exist, that all things are explainable by the sciences. <clears throat> That's one, one of the um, causes of this loss of the sciences, I mean of miracles. The other was the Reformation. And I want to take a minute with this because in some ways to me it's more important. You know from our work in the Reformation that most of the reformers took away miracles, the sacraments. Um, Luther eliminated several of them and Calvin did away with them altogether. Sacraments are gone. So the Catholic participation in miracles, because we believed in them, that was, our, that was a matter of not science, but of faith. Uh, we participate in miracles every day. The Eucharist, confession, the priesthood, marriage. Those are all sacramental. God was involved immediately in doing those things. Um, so the, the Protestant mind, by and large, certainly the fundamentalist Protestant, has taken away miracles. The Protestant believes that um, Christ healed us by what they call an imputed grace. This is absolutely crucial. This is basic to the Protestant mind. The grace is imputed. That's fundamental to the Renaissance, the Reformation, um, reformers thinking. Grace is imputed. That means it's an external covering. That was, their, that was how it was articulated. Christ offers us a grace, and it's like a, um, an external gown that covers us. Some of the people in the Reformation described it in terms of a snow falling on dung. It doesn't change the dung, it just, you know, it covers it. The Catholic does not believe that. He, first of all, the, the Protestant believed that we were depraved. The, the effects of the fall were complete. We're depraved. No free will. It's only by God's grace that we can manage in the world. So they believe that grace is imputed. It's an external. It's put on. Um, the Catholic does not believe that. He doesn't believe that we're depraved. Um, and he doesn't believe that grace is imputed. It's external. He believes that it works through the sacraments, that miracles go on and human beings participate them, in them. And I've used that word again and again that the church fathers use, remember? Theosis. That, um, that by participating in the sacraments, man took on divine qualities because that's what Christ brought when he took on our nature. He added something divine to it. He went back to heaven with it. So man is invited to participate in a divine work. So miracles are part of what we do. One of the, I mean, one of the sad things for me in the modern world is that I think lots of Catholics take that for granted. They, they take the Eucharist like it's a commemorative act. It's just, you do it. Suzanne told me this story of some guy she read years ago, I think he was Islam, who was talking to a Catholic who was describing the Eucharist, and the Muslim's response was, I don't believe you. You can't mean that, because if what you're saying you really believe, when you went before the priest to receive the Eucharist, you would 
you would um, prostrate yourself. You would lie down before that God with an inexpressible gratitude because you're receiving God into yourself. How many Catholics approach the Eucharist with a sense that they're taking the divine life into them? So the, what the Protestant, one of the effects of the Protestant mind with this notion of um, an imputed grace is the removal of miracles completely. So I, I, I think I've mentioned this before. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do some writing and as I've been, have had fundamentalist movies on my mind and, and I'm trying to go through some I've seen. It's not uncommon in a fundamentalist movie to just have a, a, a guy who's an alcoholic or usually it's a man. I, I don't think the women come under this criticism they should, but men are alcoholics or abusers or something. And they reach a moment in their life where they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, and it's done. Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and the whole world turns. It's like the peripatia, except to me it's so reduced in meaning. So you go along in your life, you accept Christ as your Savior, and you're saved. Okay? Here's the difficulty. Um, Catholics believe in miracles, in sacraments. We're in a play in which right now they're disappearing, except for this woman. And we know from all of our work together, going from, the, from Homer, Virgil, Dot, you name it, Boethius, the great task for the Catholic, since he, believed, and he, he believes we're wounded, not depraved, and we have free will, the great task for us is to order our loves, to bring justice and mercy together in our families, in ourselves. We believe in Christ, but we don't believe that and, and I think we share this belief with the fundament. If a moment in our life comes where we say, I do believe in Christ, we believe the change is going to take place. So it for a fundamentalist. But the life of a Catholic is far more complicated. He, he's confronted, if he's trying to live Christ, with the task of ordering his loves, which means making his loves like Christ's. Bringing justice and mercy together. Every Mass Every Mass implies that. Old Testament, justice. Every Mass has an Old Testament reading. They're always about justice. That's the Father. Did Christ come into the world to disobey his Father? Or demean his meanings? As if justice didn't matter? Every Mass begins with an Old Testament reading. Almost always about justice. The New Testament is almost always about reconciling the law with mercy. Christ is constantly doing that. And think about the think about the example of the woman in adultery. He sends the men back, trusting that they're going to have a greater sense of the mercy in what they do with law. Remember when they were going to stone her? They're going to go back and practice the law. But is there any way they can do it without having a greater sense of mercy because of what he did? He sends the woman back and says, don't sin anymore under the law. But her life has been spared. She knows mercy. I can't, it's hard for me to find scenes in the New Testament in which Christ is not fulfilling the law in a love that went past the Old Testament. But he never abrogates it. He doesn't do away with it. He says himself, I didn't come to do away with the law. He came to fulfill it. So the work of a Catholic, because he doesn't believe that, that um, the effects of the fall are complete, that we're depraved, is to become like Christ, order our loves. To bring justice and mercy together. Portia does that in Merchant, or in Merchant, or yeah, Merchant, right? Helena is doing it here. 
She's got to hold herself faithful to those vows. She's been bound by those vows in a marriage. She, they got married. She has, to do, she has to do what Griselda did. She has to be perfectly obedient and fulfill those vows. And she does. The difference between Griselda and, and Helena is Helena is absolutely resourceful. I mean, she, she, she's just brilliant in what she does with her mind and heart. Okay? So, we're on the verge of, a, of the modern world, and we're watching dynamics split our world apart. Miracles, rationality, mercy, grace, all of them. And we're living the disorders that were set in motion then. And Shakespeare is on that, on that threshold. In, in lots of ways, very aware of what's coming. In this particular play, he shows a woman whose, whose actions, I believe, are more Christ-like than almost any other woman I've seen in literature. Everything she does is in obedience. And, you know, lots of people ask, what does she see in Bertram? I mean, it's, it's a legitimate question. He's a scoundrel in lots of ways. The, the answer to that should be, what did Christ see in us? That we are so good? Well, truly, I mean, if, you know, we, we're so proud. I'm speak, maybe speaking too much for myself here. We're so proud. We think we deserve more. You know, when somebody, when we don't get what we want, we criticize somebody and put somebody down because we think we're so good. If we look at ourselves honestly, the, it seems to me the only truthful thing we can say is we didn't deserve Christ. He came not because we deserved him, because if we deserved him, he wouldn't have had to come. He came because we couldn't do it ourselves, because our sins are so great. But what he did that the ancient world didn't do is he just didn't, remember, the, the aim of the ancient world was desert, justice, what, what, we, what we're warranted. Plato, Aristotle, justice means getting what's deserved. There's a strong, strong sense of justice. Christ came into the world not, to, not just to answer a sense of justice, but to give us something we did not deserve. Did Dante deserve Beatrice's help? He was damned. And look at what he becomes at the end of the Divine Comedy. The assumption is he's damned. We know that halfway through the Commedia. He deserved her love? Absolutely. Well, no, did that keep her from loving him? No. We're asked to love people. We're asked to love people for their goodness. We're asked to, leave, to love them even more when they're not good. Does that mean enabling? I don't believe so, because we're called to justice. Is everybody following me? What I'm suggesting is this is much harder than my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope I'm not doing any injustice here. We're called to love. When somebody does something wrong, we're not called to hate them. We're called to love them more. That asks more of us. Does it mean enabling? No, it doesn't. We're not supposed to lose sight of justice, but it does mean we have to work to be just and grow in love the way Christ did. And what I'm suggesting here is that Helena does that almost more perfectly than any character. We'll see later, I mean, in Winter's Tale, I think what Paulina and Hermione do. And they're women. <coughs> it's women who are the ones who do that, okay? So, um, I want to... So, Helen is this extraordinary figure. Two things to keep in mind. Remember in Venice that um, nobody in Venice could solve the problem facing Antonio. 
if if the court had its way without um, what's her name, Portia, um, Antonio would have died and Venice would have been destroyed. Antonio, the merchant, the merchant, remember? If he dies, Venice dies because who's going who's gonna to risk entering a contract when they know that holding the contract could lead to death? So Portia has to hope, that is, she has to hold on to justice. If she doesn't, nobody will enter a contract. They won't be able to trust justice anymore. If the Christians had their way, remember, mercy, the contract would have been broken. Well, if you break the contract, who's going to risk entering into a contract? So either option, justice or mercy, by itself destroys Venice. The, this new regime that's given itself to freedom. It's only Portia that comes in, and she comes in from Belmont. She's not a product of this world. Because we know that anybody who's a product of that world is given too much to its legalism, the way that it works. What she brings to Belmont is a sense of tradition, philosophy, art, beauty, music. Those, those things that have no credit in Venice, because Venice lives on a surface with what, what, with what a woman in the, in the Elizabeth Ancine group called tran transactional. transactional surfaces, you know, contract. Um, grow up in a commercial regime, and what are the men, I guess increasingly women, do every morning? Look in the financial page. How, how, many of them, how many of them have studied philosophy and know being? Portia's the only one in that courtroom who knows the real end of the law. To Shylock, it's the, the legal letter. Does he want justice? Absolutely not. He wants to kill Antonio. He's using the law to get away with murder. How many people, look, remember Flem Snopes? Got away with the law everywhere. The Christians, do they have the wisdom? Absolutely not. For them, it's a matter of faith. Let him go. Nobody in that regime has any sense of tradition, of philosophy, of being, of deeper things. She's the only, and a woman. Why? Because all the damn men are too preoccupied with business. If, if we fast forward for three centuries, what's, what's the one major, the major major for almost all men and women at, at the university today? Business. Business. Mm. Don't get me started. Let's not. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> that did it. I hope you all see the irony of that. People go to college to get a degree. I mean, 40 years ago, nobody would, they didn't even have a business major. Now it's the dominant major. Who knows tradition? Who, who knows our past? Who can draw on it for help? Portia brings into that world something that world no longer knows. Helen is doing the same thing. Her wisdom, she inherits, what interesting, Portia's wisdom from her father. Helen's wisdom, her father. The father-daughter relationship is absolutely crucial to Shakespeare, just as the mother's son is. So Helena, so um, traditionally, the, the, the city has been the, the place of trial for men. The women have been in the family standing free of that world, able to bring something that the men couldn't. The analogy is somewhat consistent here. Um, Helena, Helena has no aspirations in court, none. 
She doesn't challenge it. She doesn't criticize it. She has n no aspirations to be a part of it. She doesn't want to climb class. She loves Bertram. That's it. And everything she does is to realize that love. That speech on virginity at the beginning makes that really clear. Not my virginity yet. In my Lord he will find this, 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 this. That is everything. The extraordinary thing Shakespeare does there that he's never done anywhere, to me it's just, I, it, it just boggles me. What he makes clear is she has a love that's prior to the political world. She has no aspirations. She wants nothing from it. She expects nothing from it. Her, her, her virginity, her love for Bertram is not contingent on, giving, on receiving anything from the sexual act. And as we go through the movie, we see how important that is for, because Bertram goes to have sex with these women. All the soldiers want to have sex. That they're, The two principles of the, of the play are marriage and lust. And what we discover is lust is disintegrating. It, it destroys, it breaks down. Marriage unifies. But the cost of it for Helen is she has to really struggle to be obedient to her vows to realize them. So Shakespeare's dealing with um, virginity and marriage and lust and showing that it's only in a marriage and the struggles, in this case, that Helena takes on, that that, that marriage can be realized. Because the men, if they're left to themselves, are out having sex, doing what they do. And generally the women giving in to them. That's what the men are doing in the battle. They're having sex with the women and the women are, except for Diane who's trying to hold on to her. <clears throat> so we're already on the, on, on the verge of the modern world with what lust, think about what lust has done in our old age. Abortions. Um, I saw this movie uh, unplanned months ago. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's about a woman who worked with Planned Parenthood, who, who finally witnesses an abortion and it changes her life. And at the end of the movie she says, broken in tears, she's just shattered by the self-discovery that she realizes what she's done. It's a heartbreaking moment. She said, um, I'm implicated in the death of 20,000 babies. Because she was facilitating all of this and it crushes her. It's a powerful movie. One of the I, I'm troubled about it because it was fundamentalist. It's one of the things I'm working on because I'm tr so troubled at, at, at the at the seductive power this fundamentalist world is having on our Catholic faith today. It's just it's it's a much easier religion. Um, one of the troubling things about her line, "I'm implicated in the death of 20," she's alone. She's alone, or she's married, but there's I mean, the, the movie doesn't explore the marriage. She's alone. Where are the men, those 20,000 babies? Where are the goddamn men? Because there are millions. We've given women an autonomy. They can do whatever they want. Where are the men, <coughs> the fathers, the husbands, who are implicated? No woman is going to have a child. No woman can, no woman can carry, I don't care what Roe Wade says. No woman can carry a child without a man having... I mean, I'm not. I'm leaving out rape here. I'm just talking about consensual. There's nothing in a. There's not a tree in a woman's world. It's not a train. It's not a piece of furniture. It's a human being. It was in the beginning. It will be at the end. Where are the men? Where are the men in the lives of those millions and millions of babies who are being killed in our modern world? So this whole issue of sex and lust. The one of them being disintegrating and the other one being unitive. And the cost of it in virginity is crucial. 
And one more thing, and then I want to look at the story. <coughs> Remember, why does Shakespeare much make so much of virginity here? <coughs> not my, not my virginity yet. Her love is not contingent on the sexual act. It's prior to it. Her love is born out of a wholeness prior to her giving herself or receiving anything in the sexual... She loves him, period. The source of that, if I'm making connecting the dots here, is Mary. Because she's the only virgin birth that we know of. She committed herself to Christ before she got... I mean, there, there was no human conception... So at the center of our faith is a woman who gave birth to our Lord virginally. There's, so our faith, in a sense, sanctifies, elevates virginity. See that carried through in the orders, in the women's orders. Um, it doesn't diminish marriage. I don't. Shakespeare's not saying that. He, he elevates marriage. It's a great thing. What I think he's doing here is showing that there's a woman is capable of a love prior to any political thing. She can bring to that something men can't. What does she bring? Life. Woman's the means of bringing life into the world. And remember for us, um, anima naturalite Christiana, the natural image of Christ. Every woman, woman is the means of bringing the image of Christ into the world. Mary did it in herself. Every woman does it by analogy with every child she brings into the world. Every woman who has an abortion is taking that image out of the world. She's cutting it off. We are made in the image of God. Woman is the means of that. I think in this story, Shakespeare's highlighting that in a way that I've never seen any writer do before. Okay, So even though I th the ending of this isn't particularly a great ending, I mean, just the way he finishes it, to me it's dealing with um, one, of the, one of the, I don't know to call it, one of the key issues that's going to show us moving away from a Christian sacramental world order, sacramental, God-oriented, into a modern world that's more man-oriented, anthropocentric instead of theocentric. It's no longer God-centered, it's man-centered. And the dangers that men are going to present to themselves in the secular world. Okay? Jay, yeah? And, and this might, I was struck by that one small passage about the returning uh, with the piece of velvet and the, and the notes on the side said the piece of velvet either covered battle scars or syphilitic ulcers. And that seemed like such an incredible concept. yeah. To, you know, <clears throat> until the velvet's removed, you don't know if you have a war hero or you have somebody who's been yeah. laying with wars. I mean, it right. just, what a contrast. And it's really interesting. I mean, you, if you, it's, you know, one of the things I said before we did this is, be careful of the language here because Shakespeare's, in almost every scene, he's pulling, he's playing with paradoxes. Death, feeding life, and, you know, um, virginity and marriage, and it's not until you give up your virginity that you got life. There's almost nothing he's doing that isn't pulling opposites together and making us look at opposites. Um, 
it's, it just asks for a lot of mental work because the, he's, he's pulling opposites together regularly here and giving us a complexity that's, that I don't think is fully worked out, but it's there. But <clears throat> I, just, I just have one comment on the ending. And I know Shakespeare's taken a lot of hits on, on the ending. And I don't, maybe he wasn't a reader to get the publisher. I don't know. But to me, I walked away from that with a totally different feeling. Totally different from what? Well, for me, it, it was, I think he did it on purpose. Because, I mean, Funny. All, all's not necessarily well just because it ends well. And I mean, to, to make it very simply, if you, if you cheat on a test and get a hundred, do you feel the same way about that, that if you studied hard for that test and you made a hundred? Right. Yeah, you don't. And I think if he hadn't, so I mean at the end, even though it appears that she got what she wanted and he was enlightened, right? you don't really know. You don't really walk away from that feeling the same way you, you do about some of the other Winter's romance things. Yeah. You say, well, you know, in another year, is he going to be out cheating on Helena, you know, or something? I, and I think the fact that he ended it the way he ended it, and as abruptly as he does, causes you to walk away from that saying, you know, maybe maybe it does matter how you get somewhere yeah. in the end. Yeah. And to me, the, 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 the sonnet we just read, 146, I guess, kind of says the same thing. I mean, if you, if you focus on the wrong things and, and you get to the end, um, death, death is death. But if you, if you don't, then there's something, something after that. Let me just briefly, um, anyway, just no, no, I'm glad for it. Cause I, to me, that's, I mean, that's, I don't myself fully dis or agree with it, but let me just offer a response Fred, cause it's, it's, it's such a good one. Um, the end of the sonnet affirms, it doesn't leave us guessing. The end of the sonnet is defeat death and you know, you'll live. Um, it's an affirmation of renunciations and as a way of defeating death. So it ends on a positive note. Well, that was so, my point. Sorry? I said that was my point. That if you, if you get to the end in the right way, you are right. going to have a positive right. from that. Yeah, right. If you don't, you aren't. Yeah, but here's, so he's dealing with the tension and the struggle in the sonnet and comes to an affirmation. I, I believe, personally, that the, that the end of... Um, the play does the same thing, but I think it does it in a shallow manner. Let me just, I don't want to, this is, I mean, we could disagree, you know, for hours. Um, if you look at all of Shakespeare's plays, all of his plays, and well, even the tragedies, as tragedies, mean you've overcome a wrong and it's, 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 it, the end comes at a cost of great calamities and deaths. And, but they've been cleansed. A, um, a purification has taken place. And in the romance, the same thing. He never, he never, maybe Timon of Athens, but if you look at all of his plays, he, he is, his, his mind and heart are sacramental to the core, even if he's dealing what seems to be with just a strictly secular world. Everything about the play um, draws us to that conclusion that, that Helen and, and uh, Bertram will have a good marriage because he's been absolutely, utterly unmasked, completely unmasked. There's nothing 
that he's done that, that hasn't been brought out into the open. So that I think we're supposed to, supposed to feel the sense of um, he's been so chastised, so unmasked, everything about him has been revealed that was hidden before, there's little to hide. And he has in her a, you know, a, a womb of genuine love. So he, for me, even though I don't think it's worked, I mean, you can come away with that reading, but even though it's not worked out the way it is in Twelfth Night or Winter's Tale, we've done Winter's Tale, um, I think that's in his mind, the reading of it. it to me, it's, it's left too much in a state of abstraction. But all, the, all, all, all that was required to have been done, he'd done. He knows it. Bertram's been unmasked. He's embarrassed. He's humiliated. He's going to live at court. It's hard to believe that he would do that again because we know that there's something good in him. He, but he, he, he had this surface. One of the things that Shakespeare's doing in this play is um, unmasking surfaces. This is where I'm going to go in just a minute. Parolles, to me, is an image of everything false about that world. People live in words. They live in language. He, he wears scarves. He's all dressed up. Um, Bertram has that in him. The whole play unmasks that in both Parolles and Bertram. They're, they're unmasked. They're, we see them as they are. So everything at the end has, has worked out the way it does in a tragedy where all the wrongs have been answered and we're ready for something new. What I don't like about it is exactly what you're describing. It, it's just that, that the that what follows it isn't worked out. You can come to the conclusion that you're coming to, but the whole play, in my mind, brings us to that. I just don't think he develops it the way he does in other plays. But I think your reading is a, a really good one. Let's go to what I'm calling doubling. I want to do this, if I can do this quickly. And why he does this. Turn to the scene where Bertram, um, where Helena undergoes her ordeal, and she gets the choice of men, and she enters into it with some trepidation. She knows she can be refused, so it's a little bit like the Portia casket scenes. She has to approach these men. I don't want to go through the whole thing, but she goes, she approaches them somewhat nervously, self-consciously. She knows she can be rejected, but... She goes through each of the four men. Each one of them would love to have her. Lefeu is off on the sign, side watching her move from man to man, and he thinks each of the French lords is rejecting her when they're not. Go to Act 3, Scene 5. Act 3, scene 5. The ordeal, are you looking for the ordeal scene, Robert? Yeah. It's Act 2, scene 3. Act 2, yeah. scene 3? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Where? Act 2, scene 3. About line 40, Act 2, scene 3. Oh, yeah, God. Wow. Okay. Oh, I'm... Anyway, let's start there. Um... She goes from man to man, about line um, 60 or so, 
the, she's healed the king. About line 30, Lefeu says of what happened, the very hand of heaven. So when you're reading, if you, if you went back and reread it a second time and read it more closely, you'd be aware that all the allusions to heaven or divine help um, working with Helena. Line 60, Helena, gentlemen, heaven hath through me restored the king to... She acknowledges that she could not have done this without it. Think about the importance of that. She's a healer. She's a Christ healer. What she's doing isn't just working with theories in her mind. She's actually performing a healing, and she knows it couldn't have been accomplished without God's help. Because the ultimate cause of things are not scientific determinisms, they're God. Heaven hath through me restored the king to health. They all understand it. And she says, line 75, Now, Diane, from thy altar do I fly, and to imperial love that God must die. So this is the moment. Diane is the virgin goddess in the ancient world. She is turning from a virgin, from a virginity in here. She sees this as the moment of a turn in her life, from a virgin to marriage. So she's committing herself to God. The imperial love. So this is not one of the ancient pre-Christian gods. Now, Diane, from thy altar do I fly, and to imperial love that God most high. So it's so clear, if you, if you read it closely with these religious illusions in mind, that she's working in cooperation with another order. There's nothing that she's doing without it. She goes to each of the men and offers, or stands, each one offers himself. Line 90 or so to the third Lord, be not afraid that I your hand should take. I'll never do you wrong for your own sake. Blessing upon your vows and in your bed find fair fortune if you are. She's so self-modest. Everyone, she's self-deprecating. She, she puts herself down as if she's not worthy and wishes the Lord well. She blesses each one of them. So she's not there for her ego. Lefeu is getting so upset, these boys are boys of ice. They'll none have her. Sure, they are bastards to the English. The French never got them. You can imagine how well that'd go over to because this is an English audience that he's writing to. Um, finally, she comes to Bertrand and she says about line 100, um, Ever whilst I live into your guiding power, this is the man. The king says, take her. Now, I don't want to read all of this, but you've all read it. You know that Bertram argues with the king. He came to the court and offered his obedience to his liege lord. He's supposed to serve him at his life. He's being asked to marry. He will not do it. Um, he says, but follows it, my lord, because he said, the king says, she healed me, but follows it, my lord, to bring me down, must answer for your raising. I know her well. She has her breeding at my, at my father's charge, a poor physician's daughter, my wife. The thought that he would marry a poor physician, somebody beneath him, is outrageous. So what Shakespeare's showing is the effect that privilege can have on a class, that it cultivates the sense that they're better than others. What the French and American revolutions did was wipe that out. Both of them said, um, we're all equal. Class divisions cannot determine our status. We've got different talents. Political systems should not interfere. We want to try to become who we are. Um, the king says he will supply everything she lacks. Um, Bertram says, 145, I cannot love her, nor will strive to do. Thou hast wronged thyself, if thou should strive to choose. That thou art well restored, my lord, I'm glad. Let the rest, this is a, a knight saying, let the rest, he's telling the king what to do. 
the king finally gets angry and threatens him, and then Bertram consents. Finally says about 175, I take her hand. The king says, the solemn feast shall more attend upon thy coming space, expecting absent friends. As thou lovest her, thy love to me, religious. He knows that this has been a divine undertaking. He's trying to protect that now in, in what he's doing. Now, hold on. Um, so this is a scene in which Bertram is exposing himself almost without any sense that he's doing it. He, he seems to be protecting the sense of wanting a choice in his marriage. In the very next scene, when the, when the court company leaves, Parolis and Lefeu are left behind, and there's this embarrassing exchange between Lefeu and Parolis. Um, 185, your lord and master did well to make his recantation, recantation, my lord, my master. Paroli is giving the impression that he doesn't serve this master, that who he really serves is the king, because he's above this sort of thing. So we're seeing in Paroli's this pride of class, of privilege. Ah, is it not language I speak? Don't you understand me? A most harsh one and not to be understood without bloody succeeding. That is, he's, you keep talking like this, we're going to go at it. It's a challenge to Lefeu. Remember, Lefeu is one of the only men left over from this former age that shows any nobility. He looks back. So, we're leaving an age of heroic deeds, a world of knights. We're entering a world of words. Parolis is a cast back to that heroic world. He's on, the, I'm sorry, Lefeu. Lefeu is about ready to challenge Parolis because Parolis is acting like he can take him up on it. Um, a most harsh one, not to be understood without bloody succeeding, not what's going to come after it. Are you companion of the Count Rossillian? To any count, to all counts, to what is man, he's saying, to whatever is most manly. To what is Count's man, Count's master of another style, that's the king. You're too old, sir, let it satisfy you, you're too old. So Parolis is acting like he's too old for him to bother with, otherwise he'd take him down. Parolis sees, or Lefeu sees through this, yet the scarfs and bannerets about thee did manifold dissuade me from believing thee a vessel of too great a burden. I have found thee now, I have now found thee. When I lose thee again, I care not. Yet thou art good for nothing but taking up, and that thou art scarce worth. That is, you can take up things in words, but you won't. He says he's found him out. He knows him. So he's seen through him. Um, he offers his hand. Parolis won't take it. Um, um, Lefeu enters and comes back to say that the marriage has taken place, and they have words again. Um, Lefeu ends the exchange on 255. Go to, sir, you were beaten in Italy for picking a colonel out of a promigant. You are a vagabond and no true traveler. You are more saucy with lords and honorable personages than the commission of your birth and virtue gives you. That is, you seem high-born, but you, you act way beyond what you're capable of doing. You are not worth another word. Remember, he's called Parolis. Word. Else I, I call you knave. I leave you. Parolis is really upset at all of this. Now, go back, to, go to the end. Um, um, go back where? To the end where um, Parolis um, is uncovered, where the Lords, sorry, I think I've got the wrong, um, the Lords 
come to Bertram and tell him that um, this is about line three, scene. It, well, actually, line three, scene five. Um, Act. Um, the women first start talking about paroles in Act Three, Scene Five. I know this lady. There's a gentleman that serves the court reports, but coarsely of her. Um, and they they learn about this man that serves um, Bertram, but they don't have much good to say about him. In Act Three, Scene Six, the lords approach Bertram and say, "This is about line ten. Believe it, my lord, in mine own direct knowledge, without any malice." But to speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. It were fit you knew him, less reposing too far in his virtue, which he is not, he might at some great and trusty business in a main danger fail you. That he's a threat to the company. If they go to war because he's not trustworthy, he could, his actions could lead to a disaster. So they plan, I'm going to cut this short, they plan to reveal him, to unmask him. You know, they're going to capture him, put a blindfold on him, and they're going to threaten him with these false, line, false words. And then bring him to Bertram and ask these questions, and the questions are all going to show that, he's a tra that um, Parolles is a traitor. He's going to give them information about the location, the number, their designs. He sold them out and in front of Bertram. And moreover, he even describes Bertram as this scoundrel. Now, at the same time that that's going on, the women are, are putting on their plot. Helen is talking with the widow and Diana about trading places in the bed, getting the ring off of Bertram's finger. So two plots are going on. One involving Parolles and one involving um, Helena and Bertram. Okay. Now, um, here's my question. In the first scene that I just went over quickly, Bertram partly exposes himself in front of the king. The king gets harsh and threatens him, and he agrees to the marriage. Immediately after that, Parolles is partly exposed. Lefeu says, you're not who you seem to be. I see through you. I found you now. And we go on. At the end of the play, Parolles is unmasked. They capture him, blindfold him. They get all this information. He's exposed to Bertram. And in the in the plot involving the women, Bertram's exposed. And the irony is, is, as soon as he leaves the men after the Parolles exposure plot, he says, let me take you to the widow, this woman that he intends to have to go have sex with. So the soldiers are apparently encouraged to go have sex with the women. They're at battle, they're away. It's what men do at battle. So um, he, he, he's present when Parolles is exposed. And then he goes and participates in this plot that's going to expose him. Okay? After it's over, Diana's going to go back to court with a letter saying, he's obliged to marry me because that was his promise. And I want to go to that in a minute just to read, to, to read it to what she said because to me it's one of the most humiliating moments all the play. But before we go there, why does Shakespeare do this? Bertram exposes himself. Parolles is exposed. Um, Parolles is unmasked. Bertram is involved in something that unmasks him. What's going on? 
Why does Shakespeare put those together? Or let me put it differently. Is there any way in which Parolles, who's a character in his own right, is meant to be a visible image of something in Bertram that he's making us aware of by these parallels. Isn't that doubling you're talking about? Yeah, but I'm asking, yes, what, let me just, what, what does, are there some ways in which Parolles reveals something to Bertram that even Bertram doesn't seem to be aware of in, in himself? And that we become aware of as readers watching the two. And why does Shakespeare do this? I think in the modern we might call it an alter ego or... I mean, we don't, I mean all of us go through life, right, seeing people who resemble us, and very often we see people doing something we don't like, and then sometimes later we might be struck by it and say, I see that same thing in myself, or we don't see it very well, you know, until something happens, but... What's Shakespeare doing here? Well, to me, Parolles is easy to, I mean, he's transparently dislikable. Um, yeah. And he uses the words in nonsense, almost nonsense, not nonsense, they're brilliant, but, but in ridiculous ways yeah. that are easy to see. Yeah. Bertram can't see it even though he sees the ridiculous... Or we can't see it in him as obviously. Yeah, but I don't like Bertram. Go, go. The beginning. But it, okay, but, but Bertram can't see the flaws in himself, despite the fact that he's seeing this image very much of what he does and the excuses he makes. And, the, and he actually loves him. He says he admires him. He finds no flaws. Yeah. the men who have to point it out to him. Yeah, but then you point it out, and he sees that, but he doesn't see that it goes any farther. In himself. In himself. Yeah. Yeah. And we do that often. Yeah, well, but, yeah. Um, Why does Shakespeare do that? Is everybody following that there's a doubling going on? That one of the, this is extraordinary. He, he, it's a way of exploring character. He's showing us a, a noble man who's noble by, who's good. He, he leads the army to victory. He's, he's got good qualities in him. With respect, so it's really clear that the men go to Italy not to defend their country, because the king's not supporting any wars. They're going for their own vainglory. They're going for their own honor. So when they act with, with their own self-interest in mind, they do really well. With respect to knowing himself or being humble the way Helena is, not there. The men, the men use women everywhere. If they're going to do great deeds, they do great deeds and pet themselves on the back. And other men say, look how good he is. But with respect to knowing himself or the darker things in himself, what does he know? He's a noble. Why does Shakespeare do Is everybody following? Why does Shakespeare do this? Because it's a way of showing, in one sense, how deeply he penetrates character. If Parolles is an image, a visible image of something invisible in Bertram, it's showing he sees levels of meaning in Bertram pretty clearly. If we were in a tragedy, Bertrand would be having soliloquies and would be giving himself away. But we're not, we're in a comedy. So we don't get these tragic soliloquies, we just get Bertram showing what a good man he is. 
even though he runs away and you know, doesn't hold himself to his vows. God, the men are scoundrels. Details. It makes me embarrassed to be a man watching these guys. Details. Hmm? Vows. Details. Details? Yeah, he just runs off. Oh, just a detail. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why does Shakespeare do this? I think if, if any of you have read Charles Dickens or Dostoevsky, some of the moderns, you find doubling going on all the time. Tale of Two Cities, you've got Carlton and Kent, the two men who are almost identical, and the one man goes, saves the life of the other at the end. If you remember Tale of Two Cities, what's the last line? Um, it's a better thing, right? He's never done a better thing in his life than give his life for this, so it's very Christian. And um, Pip, or Dick, um, um, Great, Great Expectations, there's doubling there. If you read Dostoevsky, several of his novels have, in, in uh, Brothers, we'll see it, that very often you've got a, a, a really dignified man and an alter ego who's a um, sinister character. And they're, we, the way things are presented, we're meant to connect them somehow. Why are, and it all begins with Shakespeare. Why now is this doubling occurring in literature? What's Shakespeare doing? <clears throat> There's no doubling in Dante. Why not? Because what you because everything in Dante's world is measured against a final end. It's all there. What happens when we lose a sense of final ends and respectability becomes the measure of things? We start lying to ourselves. Can you flesh that out, Tom? I'm absolutely on, but can well, relate that to doubling, can you? <clears throat> well, we're, we're incredibly naive about our own darkness. You can't see it. It's right there. Other people can, yeah, and it's it has to be mirrored in some way, and I think uh, it's um, you know I, I think it's it's the uh, naivete, the hero, they're not conscious of this other part of themselves, and they don't have access to or it. how deep this other part. Well, exactly, yeah. you know, it's yeah, like, it's, that there's levels of personality, and yeah, there's aspects that, yeah that often the ego doesn't know about. Yeah. But, um, you know, Jung called it the shadow, so that, that that part of us will always show up as, as a projection from uh, on somebody else in the environment. Yeah. And then you do battle with that person, then realize, oh, I'm talking to myself. Self. You know, so it's a, it's a way of waking up. If you can, if you can stay engaged, and be open to the possibility that the reason I oppose this person so vehemently is that it's true about me. Yeah. And that's that's very hard to come to emotionally. Yeah. yeah, I'm so grateful for that, yeah. Is everybody following? And to add another note to this, we, I mean, it, I'm on a surface and Tom's going to depths here, but um, in, a, in, a, in a world, 
I, I think for Shakespeare, who sees the depths, always has. I mean, there, I, I, I don't know of another poet who sees depths as well as him. He, what, the fact that he can give women the words that he does, like Helena or the men, to me is just astonishing. He, he, he's so capable of entering depths and surfaces, dealing with both. But I think at a, at, at a time in the Reformation where this concept of depravity enters our consciousness, that we're depraved, not, the Catholic believes we're wounded, or should, not depraved. Um, when this notion that we're depraved enters into our consciousness, um, it darkens our, our view of the world and also of ourselves. And when you take away fine lens that exists the way they do for Dante, and you're left with respectability, I think part of the problem is how do you hold on to what's noble in man while exposing this dark shadow? So I think the reason for this doubling comes in because it's a way of, for Shakespeare, of Charles Dickens, who loved, who, for whom respectability, I mean, the church life gets translated in terms of respectability. We saw this in Melville and Faulkner, absolutely clearly. Both of them, both of them are so clear on it. That respectable Protestant world gets destroyed in, Mel, in Moby Dick, it does in the town, in Faulkner's The Town. Remember when um, Montgomery Snopes hides behind respectability? He's gonna threaten them if they expose him. Everybody, everybody in the town is gonna be embarrassed. If respectability becomes your final end, you become complicit in it, implicated. You've got to protect it. So an enabling mechanism gets set up. I think what Shakespeare's doing is trying to hold on to what's noble in a man while exposing him. And so we, it, it happens in symboling. He, he uses doubling again. That, in fact, you get almost an identical likeness in another human being to, to the hero. Because it's showing that there is some greatness in the hero, the heroic figure, um, but there's something really wrong. Why doesn't the doubling go on with Helena? There's no discrepancy with her. Her love is whole. She, she's not caught up in this political world. There are no divisions. She has no aspirations there. Her love is Christ-like from beginning to end. She is who she is. And the irony is, is she's so good at I remember in those passages where she's talking with Helena, they're talking about it as on the surface as being an evil deed because they know that, that Bertram's going to have sex, illicit sex with Diana. So on the surface, it's illicit. It's wrong. Every, the, the women know it. But they also bring in a good intent. So Chaser's playing with parodies, you know, making, bring good out of evil. She's actually doing what God does, according to Boethius. She's working with evils, trying to bring good out of them by what she does with them. And she's, I mean, she's extraordinary in what she does, if you think about it, if you give this any credibility. Um, I just want to look at the last scene just to complete this humiliation of men <laughs> in the book. Um, um, Bertram returns to the court, and he's well-received. Everybody's glad to see them, even though he's been a scoundrel. Um, he's accepted by the countess and the king, and then they see this ring on his finger that the king knows is the ring he gave Helena. And he immediately suspects that Bertram has committed a foul deed, that he's done something, because the understanding at that point is Helena's dead. It's interesting that she... I think Shakespeare intends us to feel her death was significant. 
she had to undergo a death before she could come to this point. It's, but it, once again, I just think it's, it's abstract, it's not worked out, but the understanding is she was dead, everybody assumes she's dead, Bertram comes to court. They send him off, and then this letter comes from Diane, uh, this is Act 5, Scene 3, about line 145. King reads the letter. Upon his many protestations to marry me when his wife was dead, I blush to say it, he won me. So this whore, now Bertram, God, I hate it. Bertram had nothing but contempt for Helena because she was beneath him in privilege. He looked down on her. But he would go to bed with what he thinks is a, is a camp whore, have sex with her. Made all these offerings to her to buy her off. To, and she says men do that all the time. And then once they have their sex, they're gone. Um, once his wife was dead, I blush to say it, he won me. Now is the Count Rousseau a widower. Symbolically, I think we're meant to see that death is more than symbolic here. Um, his vows are forfeited to me and my honors paid to him. He stole from Florence, taking no leave, and I followed him to his country for justice. So justice is an issue. He made a, he made a vow, just as he did to, his, to Helena. She wants to make that vow real, so she's holding to a principle of justice. Grant it me, O king, and you at best lies. Otherwise, a seducer flourishes. That is, lust goes on, unchecked. Men can keep doing this without taking any responsibility, and a poor maid is undone. <coughs> Bertrand comes back. I wonder, sir, since wives are monsters to you, and that you fly them as you swear them lordship, yet you desire to marry. Because he promised to marry this woman, even though she's a camp, a camp tramp. Um, I love that line, since wives are monsters to you. How many men look at marriage before marriage is something to flee? Um, <clears throat> if you shall marry, you shall give this hand and it's mine. She says that to him. You gave away heaven's vows and those are mine. You give away myself, which is known mine, for I by vow am so embodied yours that she which marries you must marry me, either both or none. So he's playing because she's a stand-in or a, for Helena. Good, my lord, ask him upon his oath if he does think he had not my virginity. Virginity, it, it's just so crucial. Up until this time, before the modern world, virginity was sacred because when a woman gave herself sexually, she opened herself to being. It was the one way in which life entered the world and a human being participated with God. Because our understanding was the human person had a transcendent soul. Does science protect that today? Cannot. Does the Protestant world protect her? Does the fundamentalist world? Anyway, no. Virginity was important because once a woman gave it up, she entered into being. She cooperated with God in the creation of a human person. So this virginity thing is not small here. Shakespeare's making it important, I think, for these reasons. She, here's Bertram. She's impudent, my lord, and was a common gamester to the camp. If so, why did he have her? I mean, how, how is Bertram looking in this scene? Um, uh, this is his wife that rings a thousand proofs. He's got the ring. The king, methought you said you saw one here in court could witness it. I did, my lord, but loathed him to produce so bad an instrument. His name's Paroles. 
I saw the man, they're going to bring parolees in to witness it. The king, she hath that ring of yours, Bertram, I think she has, certain it is. I liked her and boarded her in the wanton of my youth. She knew her distance and did angle for me, maddening my eagerness with her restraint. As all impediments in fancy's course are motives of more fancy, and in fine, in her infinite cunning with her modern grace, subdued me to her rate. She got the ring, and I had that which any inferior might at market price have bought. <coughs> Describe Bertram here. It's a cad. Now that doesn't even, God, cad doesn't, I read these lines and want to leave the room. It's just, <laughs> describe, oh, I'm not, describe Bertram here. Come on. You women are being too nice. Cad. Come on, you guys. Let's hear from the men here. Describe this guy. He's arrogant and contemptuous and has no trouble. In the wanton, she knew her distance and did angle for me, maddening my eagerness with her restraint. As all impediments in fancy's course are motives of more fancy, and in fine her infinite cunning with her modern grace, subdue me to her rate. I know it's not very ladylike, but I would call him a prick. <laughs> That's a good contemporary language. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't like the language, Bev. I do not. And I, to me, it doesn't go much beyond cat. What's he? And he's blaming her. She's not doing anything. Going, look at her. She's doing all of this. She's not doing anything. And he's fine. I mean, you see women doing that with men today, with you know whatever they're charging. I mean, he, there's no fault on his part. It's all her. He's blaming her, even though we know from her words. She had no intentions that way at all. She was trying to, the only reason she went into this was to help Helena. He's, he's, he's casting a darkness on her that couldn't be farther away from her deserving. He's blaming her for everything. He takes no responsibility at all for his actions. None. Are we back in the garden? At the loss of it? What well, do you mean? Go ahead. Well, man, uh, Adam's blaming Eve. She made me go. Oh, you're right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's always yeah, a projection. <clears throat> Helen is brought in at this point, and Bertram is shocked, and it's this, this obviously really difficult ending. Then. Um, but at this point, Bertram's been unmasked, completely exposed, so is Parolis. Um, both men are reconciled to the court. Um, I, I mean, I'm really with Fred on this ending. To me, it's just not a very satisfying ending. But in, in terms of the problems that the play introduced, the problems have been answered. A woman has brought back to this court this extraordinary power for transforming things. And you know, for those of you who've done the epic, you know, we've talked about the importance of foundings, that every epic deals with a founding. It seems to me Shakespeare has that, all of his plays have that aspect when you come to the a comedy, a tragedy. There's a new founding, a recovery or a cleansing for the beginning of a new founding. That what Elena brings back to this court prepares it for something radically new. She's going to bring a, a lord and, a, and somebody beneath her are going to come together. Um, there's been an unmasking, the privilege has been exposed, the falseness, the, the, the proclivity to words, surfaces is unmasked. I mean, it's, a, it's in some ways a dark play. It's showing a lot about the modern world. If you go, Shakespeare's aware that when you look back to the Christian Middle Ages, you're looking back to an ideal in knighthood the chivalric knight, the man of courage, the man who would take on deeds. We're entering a world of thought, 
of words, of contracts. Fighting that goes on in the play isn't connected with defending a country. It's out of vainglory. These are mercenaries. These are men going off for themselves, to prove themselves. It's not a very flattering world. <clears throat> if you put it together with Merchant and Othello, Shakespeare's suggesting that we're on the edge of a really dark world, the secular world cut off from God, no sense of beginnings, no sense of final ends, that respectability, surfaces, appearances are going to play a role, and I'd really enjoy Tom's description of that, you know, this alter ego, this this part of ourselves that we don't see very well, that, and Shakespeare's aware of it with this doubling that he does. So, um, this but, is the beginnings of the you, he would have to know that in himself. I mean, that's, that he had an awareness that was so advanced. Yep. You know, because he could put these things uh, that we're still discovering in psychology, but it's in these plays. You know, my own response to that is I think the poets have known it all along from well, Homer and well, Virgil. And, I, I think so. Because yeah. they just, and, and the really great psychologists are steeped in literature. I mean, they're really, I think Freud went at them the wrong way. He gave too much importance. I mean, he made the Oedipus principle, a, or what went on in Oedipus, a principle, and I don't think it is, but it, it's a, certainly a dark principle. But anyway, that, here we are in our modern world. and. And once again, I, uh, to try to leave this on a positive note, um, well, let me, let me ask the question. Is there anybody in this, anybody inside the play or outside the play who's Christ-like? Is there anything positive in this dark, forbidding world or this, this world that's on the verge of real trouble, that's undergoing real changes? Somebody Christ-like in and outside the play? You wouldn't see Helen as a Christ figure, a healer, and a, that wholeness of love that she has? Anybody else, anybody outside the play? <laughs> Let me put it there. Is there any way in which Shakespeare approaches Christ and what he does? They that have the power to hurt and will do none, that do show the thing they must do show her. I'm going to say Shakespeare is, the more I think about him as a poet, remember the poet is the one who brings the word, he, that, that if he's, he, he has to keep his mind on the task in front of him. And I'm so stunned at the way he enters into the psyche of people. You know, those words that Helena spoke that I, that I read last year when she, Bertram runs off and she, she puts the whole thing on herself. She's imagining the harm that he's going to face. So she's like a wife watching a warrior go off to war, fully aware of the dangers. I, and I gave the image of a you know, wife at home when a man goes off to work in the battles he's going to fight in the office. She's so sensitive of what he's going to be facing in the struggles, and she faults herself. She, she takes them on herself, says, I'm the cause. That in play after play after play, whoever it is, it can be Hamlet, it can be Helena, it can be Portia, he's so capable of going into the interior of a person struggling with these questions of justice and love. And in play after play, he, holds, he shows a whole city, a whole people struggling with these disorders and <laughs> finding a resolution to them. 
To me, he's the most perfect ex ex exemplar of everything that Boethius teaches. That there is no bad fortune, that even when things go bad, there's a God working to bring some good out of them. When you read Shakespeare's plays, his tragedies, his comedies, all of them, even the tragedies, there's no action that doesn't move us towards a new founding, a, a cleansing, a tragic cleansing that has to take place. It has to. Evils, Othello, Iago, Iago has to be dealt with for all the injustices. Shakespeare's adequate to that again and again and again and again in every regime. Every modern regime he's touched on, he's dealt with that problem. And he goes to the depths of the problem, whatever the nature, it could be France, it can be Italy, it can be England, it can be Rome, Anthony and Cleopatra. He, he, he goes to the heart of a problem, is fully adequate to showing the characters who are caught up in those problems, takes it to a crisis where they have to face the ugly depths of that problem and bring a good out of it. He is, he, in my mind, he's so Christ-like. <clears throat> and who's going to see it? He's a poet. You know, and he's like the Holy Spirit. He's out, so you don't see him. <clears throat> but he's bringing, he's revealing what Christ revealed in what he did in the world. In the play, in a character. So, extraordinary what he did. Just extraordinary. Jay, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to make the comment the other way. You could say there's similar is, of course, there is a legion of, has been a, a legion of people who are Christ deniers, and there is this body of people out there who are Shakespeare deniers who say right. there, there really was no, no Shakespeare. Shakespeare, or he didn't write <laughs> Or it was a woman, or it was bacon, or yeah. really, yeah. really. Yeah. It, it has to be a woman because he's among those dead white men. <laughs> that that includes Plato and Socrates and you know all anyway. Okay, Mer Merchant of Venice next week and then Othello. Um, I you can go back and look at them, read them or not. It's going to be a general thing. We're not going to go deep. I just want to do a cast back, a general cast back for the next two weeks to try to fill out this work on the modern world before we go to Eliot and. Um, and then Dostoevsky. Okay, you all have a good week. You got it, Doc. I don't know what you should have put the paper in.